Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. We have a super special episode today with Bria Grant and Natasha Kermani in the house. Bria Grant is an actress, writer, director, graphic novel author, and a household name in the horror community. Perhaps best known among us horror fans for her acting work in Dexter, Heroes, After Midnight, and Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, Bria also recently wrote and directed the very bloody and very funny 12-hour shift, now streaming on Hulu. And if that wasn't enough, Bria has released her newest graphic novel, Mary, The Adventures of Mary Shelley's Great-Great-Great-Great-Great-Granddaughter. Natasha Kermani is an Iranian-American filmmaker who made waves on the horror circuit in 2017 with her feature debut, Imitation Girl, a hypnotic doppelganger science fiction treat. In what many would call a horror dream team, Bria and Natasha recently came together on Lucky, written by and starring Bria with Natasha directing. Now streaming on Shudder, Lucky is a dark, satirical slasher with very relevant social commentary. The film tells the story of a young woman who finds herself stalked by a murderous figure who appears in her house every night and tries to kill her. With zero help from friends and local authorities, she realizes she has to take this predator out herself. Lucky is not only a very effectively frightening slasher, but a refreshingly unadulterated statement on violence against women in America. It's the type of movie that has the potential for multiple interpretations, which is one of the things that makes it as fascinating and powerful as it is. Lucky is now streaming on Shudder. In this conversation, Natasha and Bria trade career strategies, writing processes, and discuss the production story behind Lucky. All of this and so much more on today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Now, without further ado, here is Bria Grant and Natasha Kermani. Bria and Natasha, good to see you both. How's everything going? Good. good. Thanks for having us. Good, good. Really good. So can you guys walk us through essentially how the movie came together? Uh, I know that there's there's probably a big story behind it. Really curious as to how you guys joined forces as well. So can you just kind of walk us through how the movie came together from you know the, the writing of the script to you guys joining forces and you know here we are and you guys are on Shutter. <laughs> yeah, um, I started working on the script um, in I think probably 2000. I've been trying to figure this out. I think it was probably like 2015, 2016, something like that. And um, I had I took it a few places once I finished it. I wrote various drafts. I mean, I know uh, you said a lot of your listeners are writers. Uh, just <laughs> want to like, ta- I love talking about the number of drafts these kinds of things go through because they go through <laughs> so many iterations yeah. um, and like they change and they morph. And, you know, sometimes you take them someplace and someone gives you really great notes and you end up taking those with you, even if they didn't actually make the movie. Um, and that did happen a few times. And then I went some places and they gave me really terrible notes. And, um, uh, I did not take those notes, um, or I tried to take those notes, and then it didn't work out. Um, and then at some point, Epic reached out to me, and uh, they asked if I had any screenplays because they were trying to make something under the Dread label. And I sent them this, and I think uh, that it was basically they read it and were like, "Yeah, we want to, we want to make this." And to their credit, they had very few changes in the in the script. I mean, I I've been working on it, tinkering with it for a long time, but. But they kind of were like, yeah, and we want to make this with Natasha Kamani because we just did um, uh, Imitation Girl with her. They had just released Imitation Girl, I think. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. And and they were um, they really 
liked working with her and um, they wanted me to be in it. So that was kind of like what they came back to me. And uh, uh, and they sent it to Natasha uh, <laughs> without asking me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fun. No, it was, it, I think um, it was interesting because I, uh, yeah, so I had just finished Imitation Girls sort of looking for what was going to be next and um, I just, I really responded to not, not just the content of Bria's script, but the, the, it just felt like a really, like a big challenge and people who have seen the movie will understand <laughs> what I mean by that. But there's a, there's just a, she's juggling a bunch of tones. Um, there's obviously very strong themes and strong social issues lying mm -hmm. underneath the film itself. But, um, but I was sort of drawn to the challenge on every level. And so, um, yeah, after the first read, I, I was just super into it. And um, yeah, I did, I did read it with Bria in mind as the main character. <laughs> um, and yeah, so then, you know, and Bria and I knew each other already. So I was able to just sort of reach out and be like, hey, I read your script. I think it's great. You know, let's have a conversation. And then um, out of those initial few conversations, I think we realized, you know, okay, we're, we're really on the same page here. We, mm -hmm. we sort of are aligned with the story that we want to tell. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we were, we were ready to sort of come together as a team uh, and see if we could make it, you know, bring it to the screen. Very cool. And Bria, you'd spoken briefly about the iterative process of screenwriting and, you know, you've done a number of screenplays, big fan of 12 hour shift, by the way, but could you talk about your overall writing process um, and, and the kind of the script iteration process? Cause I feel like a lot of screen or would be screenwriters and actual screenwriters are just daunted by the fact that they might not get the most perfect vision on the first draft and it's just the most kind of shot in the foot for a lot of screenwriters and i don't think a lot of people realize that it is so iterative you write a crappy draft then you write another draft that's not as crappy and then you get insight and then you you know turn into a blind alley so i'm curious as to what your process is like and also what your collaboration is like i mean you said that you had submitted you'd submitted the draft for a few notes so i mean did you talk about your overall process and who uh, who you collaborate with in terms of getting notes? Yeah, totally. Um, I think there's two different kinds of screenwriters, really. I think there are people who uh, really labor over that first draft, and it takes them upwards of a year, more than a year, to write a first draft. And I have friends that are writers, and that is their process. Their process is every word. By the time they get through that first draft, it is actually like pretty good. Like it's a great, yep. perfect draft. That is not me. <laughs> I am um, a throw spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks kind of writer. Um, this is very bad, but uh, if I'm writing something on my own without somebody else, without anybody looking over my shoulder, I a lot of times like my outline is like four sentences. Like it's like, I know like here's, it's like, I know what happens, you know, at my midpoint, I know what my third act is, maybe. I know what my inciting incident is. And if I have that, I'm kind of like, here we go. And like sort right. of just start to write. Um, but I think that helps me because it makes me a little less precious about my work. Mm -hmm. So it means that like I can get through a draft, I can get it done. And then once I start letting other people read it, I haven't labored over it for three years or something. And, right. I, and I can I can be much more open and, and sort of recognize the flaws. And I see I think the flaws come out so much quicker to me. I just the problems I'm going to have because I'm writing, you know, so quickly. Um, but, yeah, I mean, my day to day process is actually like I, I have a pretty strict routine. I'm I don't I don't 
have many words I would describe myself as, but one is probably disciplined. I am yeah. shockingly disciplined, especially if you know me, because I think I come across maybe not. Uh, but I, I, I write every day. I write either, uh, depending on what I'm doing, a certain number of pages or a certain number of rewrites, uh, rewrite mm -hmm. pages on something. So I hit that number every day, regardless of, of what I'm doing, unless I'm in like a like knee deep in production, um, right. and then and then I give myself a break. Um, but that's really important to me. And once I started doing that, I think one, I got a lot more written. Um, I got a lot of crap written that I that wasn't great, but I got a lot of really good stuff written. Uh, a lot of stuff that you're seeing now that those that's all um, just from me learning to write every single day and sort of treating it like, um, like a job. Um, yeah. because my job up until writing was acting, you know, and you didn't, it was not something I could do every day. Um, right. and then I, I just like, um, to touch on like the process, like once I start sending it out to people, I really, really rely on a group of friends, a group of writer friends in LA who, um, bless them, will read any draft and I read any draft of theirs and we kind of just send it around and we go, is this, good is this a script is this worth doing like it's like those kinds of questions and then you know i have people and then as things go along i start to send it to more professional friends but mm -hmm. i just have this group of writer friends that um they're just so helpful because they can kind of they aren't judgmental they're very they right. know my writing really well um one of them is um is eric j stoltz who wrote the stylist and we've just been trading wow. drafts and stuff for years and years yeah and um i read all of his stuff and he reads all mine and we kind of just pass it around um, and give each other notes. And I feel like we both know each other's writing just incredibly well at this point. So, yeah. I mean, if people are sort of looking for that writing advice, like what that magic bullet is, I mean, there is no magic bullet. I guess that is what the magic bullet is. I mean, the ma magic bullet for me has been um, uh, discipline and uh, and goal setting and making sure mm -hmm. that like I, I'm actually just doing something every every single day. Right. I feel like that's huge. And I feel like it's something a lot of writers overlook, you know, having that in my case, I was inspired by Stephen King's thousand word or 2000 word a day minimum mm -hmm. coupled mm -hmm. with Jerry Seinfeld's strategy of having a calendar and you X every day that you write. And then you just, you sure. like the look of connective X's on a calendar. It's so just like simple human, but it, it works. You just kind of <laughs> like gamify the process. Yeah, I found I that super helpful. I'm a to-do lister. So like every morning, like every day I have a to-do list and every day mm -hmm. is like, like I'm doing rewrites on something right now and it's just like, you know, I rewrite like five pages or so a day because I'm pretty deep into it. So I'll just, right. I got to hit that number of pages and then the rest of the day I can really like screw around if I wanted to, you know, it's like a nice feeling. That, yeah, yeah. I mean, my to-do list ends up being incredibly long full of crap. I probably shouldn't even put on there, but um, I, <laughs> it is important to me and I love the greatest joy in my life is checking off my to-do list. So I don't, I Cross really, it off. Part mm -hmm. of the reason I write is so I can check it off the to-do list. It just makes me nice. so happy. <laughs> Natasha, does this differ from your own writing process? Um, it is a little different. Um, I, I think I uh, am a little bit more, um, I, I read a lot. So I mm -hmm. think my checking list often is is like reading scripts, <laughs> right. um, which which is sometimes really, so, so you know, and, and it's interesting from the directing perspective, it's like, as you're reading, you are writing, right? So usually mm, I have yeah. like half of my screen is the script, the other half is my little notes document. And so as I'm reading, I'm sort of processing on my notes side and then I finish the script and I can go back 
and I sort of have all of my notes, but, but they are writer notes, right? So it's like this mm-hmm. character line doesn't follow through or this, you know, this doesn't pay off in the right way. So I think it's a lot of, you know, from the directing side of things, it's a lot of that part of your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than like gestating new ideas, it's sort of looking at what's on the page and how it can right. be articulated better. Um, and something I really liked about Bria's script, and I think Bria, this is true for all of your work, is that, and I don't, maybe this is your acting background, but the characters are always really um, specific and they're like fully articulated. And I think that that's actually something that a lot of scripts I read are lacking. So maybe especially with horror, right? The structure is there, the scares are there, right? They're hitting all those beats, but who are these people? <laughs> right. You know? yeah. And, and, yeah. and I think that's, that's something, you know, maybe from your acting or I don't know, it's in, people are interesting to you. They're interesting to me. <laughs> so I, I think that's important to, to also remember. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, it comes in part from acting and approaching thing like approaching most scripts like from a character perspective but i think it's also like you i mean as an actor i read so Mm. many scripts and Mm -hmm. uh my first job in la one of my first jobs was i was a script reader for caa so like i started my career here reading scripts and i am not i will i will say a million wonderful things about horror the one thing i will say is that sometimes the characters are lacking and i have played those characters as an actor i've Natasha's heard me tell this story. There's a movie I'm in where quite literally my character is like somebody's girlfriend. And there's one part where I'm walking from a room to another room and I just disappear. I like the other main characters are still there. Cause it's like, my character is such a throwaway character. And I've just played a lot of sort of like side characters where I, I have had to ask myself like, does this character have a job? Does this character have like parents? <laughs> like, does this parent, like, is she, they're just like cookie cutter, like one dimensional blonde, blonde girlfriend. Yeah. Like it's a little, right. because or the scares. Friend. Yeah. And the scares don't drive the movie. The character's journey is what drives the movie. And I, and I think so many scripts are like an interesting conceit. It's an interesting horror conceit, but I, I don't care about the main character. I can't track his or her journey. And so that was that was another thing. And it's especially interesting with Lucky because the story is so unhinged. <laughs> and so able the fact that I was able to really track, even on the first read, right, even in the quick first read through of Lucky, I really tracked May's journey and where she was at any point in the journey. Um, and that really gives you something as a filmmaker to latch on to and then build outwards from. So, Yeah. I think it's fascinating that your background as an actor enables your writing. It just makes a lot of sense because you clearly are, you know, with your acting background, able to get into the mindset of a character and really dimensionalize them in your own head, which as a writer, that is, it's got to be such a leg up. Yeah. I mean, I think it's good and bad in some ways. So I I talk to so many actors that start writing. That's, I feel like this is a conversation I'm constantly having with actors who are moving (laughs) into writing or trying to write something for themselves. And my number one advice to actors, because I think we end up with like a whole different set of issues, is that um, we uh, we don't give our characters flaw- enough flaws. I think mm. that's a. I mean, not me. I I give a lot. I love to give my characters flaws, but I think that was actually like from seeing so many scripts written by actors, and they just had trouble making their characters flawed because I think we want to feel for our characters, and we we want our characters we want to root for our characters and it's hard as a writer to root for your characters when you're giving them like horrifying flaws. Right. Right. But as an actor, you feel for them so much. Um, Natasha and I were talking about, or in one interview, we were talking about the character may and 
it was weird because about halfway through, I felt like I was, I was really like defending her in some ways. Like I, I felt like she, even though I feel like she makes all these decisions that I don't agree with. And I remember writing them in a way that I didn't agree with them. And then about halfway through shooting, I was like, no, I do agree with this. And I was defensive of her. I felt myself <laughs> getting defensive of her choices, even though when I wrote it, I was writing things that I thought were like, I definitely did not agree with, which is, mm-hmm. which is such a strange, strange, uh, mind, mind fuck. Can I say fuck yeah. on the show? Yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> please. <laughs> <laughs> fuck away. <laughs> did you, sorry, that came out wrong. Um, did you, uh, did you write the screenplay with yourself in mind as the lead actress? No. no, no, I, I, I was always picturing someone just much more together than I am. Uh, someone much more, I mean, I think I ended up looking like this person. So it's like weird to try to explain it. But I think if you know me, you know that I can, you know, I'm not necessarily this character. Uh, yeah. but I think the way Natasha shot me and the way she dressed me and just like her vision for me. And once I kind of saw that through her mind, that was the vision I had for the character. But then she kind of put me in that and I was able to kind of wrap my brain around it. The more mm-hmm. I, 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 it was mostly because we went and dry, I tried on a bunch of clothes and you were like, yes, this, this. And then I was like, Oh, I can see myself in this character. Like it helped mm. me a ton to put on these clothes that Natasha thought would fit, would fit May. But no, I wasn't writing for myself. I was writing for a role that I would like to see someone play. Interesting. And then Natasha, was there a point where you said, Bria, you have to, you have to play this character. Like how did, how did the really decision from get the made? Beginning. I mean, really from the beginning, I just read it with her in mind. And, and also, you know, that was, that was one of the stipulations of the financing was that they did want. And, and that's, a, you know, that's in this case, great. <laughs> Cause Bria is yeah. a pleasure to work with. <laughs> But it's also something, um, you know, again, going back to people trying to get their projects off the ground, it's I think um, I, I, I have a lot of friends who are trying to get their projects off the ground and they have, you know, oh, well, this role has to go to person X or person Y person Z. And it's like, well, you kind of maybe have to keep those things open um, mm-hmm. because a lot of times, right, that's part of the calculation. It's part of the package that that's coming together. So right. um, it was it was um, great for me because it was like, well, in order to do this, we really want Bria in as a role. And I was like, two thumbs up. <laughs> great. Let's do it. You know, so, so cool. I think that was a really, um, again, just like a kismet thing of, of it kind of coming to me being different, um, you know, very low budget financing, but still, uh, you know, enough to make the movie. So, yeah. yeah. When you observe the movie and it's just overall singularity of vision, it's surprising that this is your first collaboration together because you mm-hmm. guys just seem to be in such lockstep, you know, from director, writer, actor. Um, could you talk about how you guys built a shorthand over the course of making this movie? Cause it, I mean, just from the viewer perspective, it seems just like you guys have a very seamless collaboration. Yeah, it was a shorthand basically, I think that a lot of women have just because this story is unfortunately a sort of um, an experience that a lot of women share. So I think a lot of that sort of intention comes through just through our shared experience. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, we had a lot of women on the team, uh, on the crew, and then even, you know, the men who were able to read the script and say, yes, I know this story. My girlfriend tells me this, my mother, my sister, whatever. So I think that sort of shared human experience is where it starts. 
Um, and then I think the second part is like, we have a really similar sense of humor. <laughs> and, yeah. and I think that was the other thing also with a lot of um, Bria's co-stars and, and the cast that we assembled <laughs> was just finding people who were going to find the humor and understand that we're making a satire. So it's like sort of setting those baseline parameters um, is really the groundwork for it. And then um, right. the last part of it is not having a big ego <laughs> and not, you know, being like, this is the Bria Grant show. This is the Natasha show. This is the mm. Drew show. Like it's, you know, we're working together to do something. So. Yeah. And it really, I right. mean, to me, it really felt like that, which was really yeah. nice, but also, I mean, on budgets this size, I think things can get very unprofessional. Like I'll mm. just say it. It's, awful like people and and it's it's personalities it's ego it's like i don't know what it is people are angry i don't i don't know i don't know but i just have been on so many sets where um there's just ego there's there's ego and and people not getting along and people not being professional and from moment one natasha was incredibly professional incredibly like um that, you know, very open to me about about everything she was doing. Like there, there were no secrets. Like this weird thing happens on these like m- these micro budgets where there's all these like people are like, oh, but they're keeping weird secrets. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds like not like insane, but it is to- totally what happens on production. Power plays, and weird little power plays. plays. Yeah, yeah, it's very yeah. weird. And there was none of that from the beginning on this. Ugh. And I will also say like. The directorial choices were all Natasha's. Natasha, like I, I firmly believe there should be a strong vision, a strong person at the helm of the ship. You need a captain, you need a general, whatever that term is, you need that person. And everyone needs to fucking listen to that person and make sure that person's vision is coming true, coming through, yep. and we're all on the same page. And Natasha's very open about her vision. She, there's no power play there. She's like, this is what it is. And then everyone can just fall in step. So it, there was never a problem. Yeah, they can do their never, jobs. Yeah, they can do their jobs. You give people that that room to do their jobs. And there's never that moment where <laughs> I'm like, ooh, is this going to be good? Because I know she's so confident in what she's doing that I could literally, and and uh, we could talk about this, but like at some point, I we finished all the rewrites on the script to shoot it. And I just stepped back and just acted. And like, there was never a question of like, there was never a question of like, who was in charge? It was Natasha like that. And it should be Natasha because it's the only way the movie's gonna be any fucking good. Mm-hmm. And like, and and I think this is the problem that even on movies of this size, you end up with like so many people's hands yeah. in the pot trying to like mix stuff around. I don't know what that metaphor is, but you know, like people trying to like, like, like piss on it. They're trying to add their own stink to the, project and it's like no like i've done my job as a writer and i can walk away because i know i have a strong director and i can bring in what i'm going to bring as an actor but it should be natasha's vision and the movie really is a reflection of what of her choices and it would not be the movie it is without those choices i think there's a difference between ego and confidence confidence Mm -hmm. not having confidence is what leads to the insecurity of people having big egos right Mm -hmm. and i think the key, and we actually talked about this when we talked about Imitation Girl, Nick, that a lot of my crew are people I work with really regularly. Mm. And so there's a lot of confidence. There's a lot of trust. There's a lot of like, uh-huh. we know each other. We're cool. When I'm asking right. for this, you know what we're talking about, right? Like, go, go do your thing. 
And so, you know, our DP, a lot of the the crew, um, even the actors, I mean, Larry Cedar mm-hmm. is someone I've worked with a bunch mm-hmm. of times. And so I think that, you know, sort of talking about confidence and honesty um, as sort of being connected <laughs> and, and being open in that way, I think is what leads to, you know, not having like a pissing contest between yeah. people. And I think a lot of that insecurity comes up when people are like nervous around each other or nervous around about their own abilities. And I, it's kind of like, no, if you know your script, you know your job, like right, I think right. my first rodeo, it's not Bria's, nobody's first rodeo <laughs> on this movie. We know what we're doing. So let's go but, execute it. <laughs> but I think you even underestimate because you are so yeah. so competent at your job. You, un- you underestimate that other people yeah. who are directing indies, a lot of times are showing up unprepared. And that is, for me, as an mm-hmm. actor who who has directed, gets that's so frustrating. And it's the first thing, when a, when a director shows up and they, like they, even if they don't know what's happening in this moment or whatever, if they're unprepared and they can't don't have a strong vision, I just watch sets fall apart. I watch people lose confidence in their director. and. It's not something that would even cross your mind because you, <laughs> you would never show up like that, you know, but I think and I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. I've just I've just been, you know, I was an actor for 10 years, so I just watched it happen yeah. on a lot of indies, you know. Yeah. And that preparation is meeting with your department heads, knowing your script inside and out, you know, processing all of the scenes, not just in the blocking and the drama of it, but also on the technical side, right? Like, what are my shots? How are we covering it? What's the production design? We were talking about wardrobe earlier. Like, wardrobe is one of my most favorite things to do as a director. I think that it's so key. I think because, like, I care about what I wear. (laughs) And it (laughs) informs me as a person. I'm like, this is really important that I know what every character is wearing. So it's like, what jewelry does she have on in this scene, right? Like that's what, when Bria says the preparation, like that's, it's all of those thousand little details that even if you're not being paid, you need to find the time to go through and create your own system for having answers to all of those questions. And it's, and it's doable. Like, I mean, we shot this movie so quickly and I just think people think because it's not a studio movie or you don't have, you know, $10 million or something, which I, guess is also a small budget i don't know but I, we shot it for so little and but it is doable to like have this stuff done it's in uh and i think it it starts it starts with um with ego again because i think a lot of directors think they can stroll on the set and make that decision on the day and like there's why would you yeah. there's no reason to do that well i think that notion of confidence versus ego is enormous because if you show up and you have an ego people are going to yeah. tune out and they're not going to want to work with you yeah or if you're not confident enough that's also a way to lose your cast and crew mm-hmm. as well. So, I mean, I feel like that fine balance is uh, is really, really critical. Mm-hmm. So the movie was shot in 15 days. Is that right? Yeah. How did you pull that off? I pitched it at 18, by the way. Okay. So mm-hmm. I wasn't, I wasn't they couldn't going give you those extra three much. days? <laughs> and we, were, we were at 18. They talked me down to 16. I was like, Ugh, fine. And then we had a really, really horrible conversation with our line producer, who is a genius, Chelsea. Um, but <laughs> yeah, we, we ended up with 15. <laughs> uh, how did we pull it off? Well, most of it is in the house, right? Mm-hmm. So the art team got, we um, fought really hard to get that house because the house logistically 
covered a lot of the movie and in a way that wasn't like impossible to move through it logistically the way it was set up it like allowed us to sort of move sort of quickly through it mm-hmm. um and sort of leapfrog so like art would be working in one room we'd be shooting in the other and we could kind of pull it off um that that was a big big thing mm-hmm. and again that goes back to the script being really contained right. you can't do that if you're doing a company move you know every location the fact that it is so you know centered in the house uh, and then we had like our little offshoot days that we put at the end. So we knocked out the house first, um, which was always the goal to sort of get the meat and potatoes of the movie mm-hmm. uh, first. <laughs> and now, okay, we got this in the can. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> and then we sort of went on to the more ambitious things. And we actually ended the movie with the most important sequence, which is the parking garage. Sequence. So we had our, our last two days was actually the last two days of the movie, which was really intense <laughs> but um but i think it worked out and, and that was uh that was actually just due to scheduling availability and stuff but um i'm actually grateful for it because i think at that point we had such a um we were kind of flying you know at that point and the, the we we knew the language of the film at that point so i think um you know and we have been working with the stunts people it's one of our more stunt heavy mm-hmm. uh sections of the movie so um yeah and then it was really important to me obviously initially i wanted three days in the parking garage i got two <laughs> so that's another lesson here kids <laughs> Ask for as much as you actually you know think you need um and so we had two days in the parking garage which uh was really important to me to really try to preserve at least that chunk of time because it was such a pivotal um sequence in the film so cool yeah we shot fast we shot really fast <laughs> cool so horror historically has worked really well as a vehicle for social commentary. And in the case of Lucky, I mean, it's it's very much on display. And I feel like the best social commentary when it comes to horror is that that you can kind of you can project your own interpretation in. And I feel like with this movie there, I, I was there were so many takeaways for me, but then they kept kind of developing. And I thought that I knew what it was about, but it it's still kind of evolving in my own mind. So, I mean, I'm curious from your guys's perspective, how would you categorize what this movie is actually about or do you prefer to leave it for the viewers interpretations um well i can say what i think and then bria can say what she thinks (laughs) um i think it is a satire that's looking closely at the experience of women in the world as an absurd um, and the absurdity of uh, the, the violence that women face um, regularly. And so violence used in a number of different ways. There's physical violence in the movie. There's emotional violence. There's the violence of um, exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sort of exploring the toll that, that takes on our character, um, who is a woman who, you know, she's a self-help book author. <laughs> she's supposed to be somebody who has all the answers. And it's the question for me really was, you know, what happens when this woman who who is supposed to have all the answers suddenly is faced with a problem that is not solvable. Right. There is no answer to this question. Um, and that's really, you know, that was sort of the spine for me that ran through, you know, every scene of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I think that did it. That was good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was good. I mean, I think there's a lot of takeaways I mean, I think there's lots, there's a lot of stuff in there. I mean, I, I what the, the script definitely started more as um, just very much straightforward. This is a movie about the normalization um, of, about of violence against women. That, right. That's what it started as. But uh, the more I wrote it, the more I wanted to talk about like conversations between women. Uh, I want to talk about um, 
a specific brand of, you know, business lady, white feminism. Um, and I wanted, and, and, and and I want to talk about like imperfect women. Like that's always something that's really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. I, I just speaking again about characters with flaws. I just, it is a little bit of my like feminist quest to, you know, we're going to have, if we're going to put more women front and center, we need to see women as humans. Humans have flaws, therefore women should have flaws. So I think like, I, I just like to see women who have actual, you know, moral quandaries and yeah. issues they have to deal with and like have done things that they aren't proud of because I think that is humanizing. Yeah. So I feel like the title is very, very revealing. And then when the title is spoken in the movie, it all, for me, just in a very sardonic way, came together. How, I hope this isn't any sort of a spoiler, but how do you explain the title? Why is it called Lucky? I mean, I think it works on, I think there's a lot of reasons. And we went over, we tried, we talked about changing this title because it's not Googleable. Right. It's uh -huh. not, it's, it's not an easy time. There's a movie I love called lucky. Like right. there's, there's <laughs> it's, it's, it is not the greatest choice for a title when it comes to stuff like that. But I think it was the greatest choice for this movie. Um, because even Natasha and I tried to come up with other names and we just never, we never came up with anything that we thought worked as well because it just works on so many different levels. It's, I, it is supposed to be a satire. Yeah. It's ironic. It's supposed to, um, it's, supposed to make you laugh but also it's supposed to make you think because at the end of the day she is lucky because she is alive right um and she is lucky in other ways as well um so i yeah i mean i think you're supposed to take it in a lot of ways and also in a very literal way because i think that is something that that is pulled from real life is that idea of like well you're so lucky that nothing else happened right right meanwhile yeah. something horrendous happened Right, right, right. Which, which did come from my real life. Around, around, uh, I got robbed at one point, and um, the, when I talked to the police, they were like, "Well, you're lucky you didn't get raped." And that was when I came up with this. <laughs> this is when I came up with this whole speech because I was like, "I'm not, I'm not lucky." I mean, I'm just. Yeah. I mean, I guess it is lucky in some ways, but I'm not. I did get robbed. Like, <laughs> not the right word. <laughs> yeah, poor word. choice of words. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But I think also it's been very interesting. I mean, I was speaking with someone, um, I think he, he's a reviewer or whatever, we were talking about the movie and, and he said, you know, he actually um, heard a lot of himself, he heard a lot of what he says to women in his life hmm. mirrored back at him oh, wow. um, through these characters that were speaking to May and sort of these little catchisms and things that they would say to her throughout the movie. And he, he was like, oh, I've said that, you know? Oh, yeah. There were so <laughs> I, many I, moments where you just hear this very cliche sort of comforting words that you've heard a hundred times. And it's just hearing it in the movies like so cringeworthy. And also that you Yes. Yeah. And like also that you've recited back to people. And I think that's um, that that was that's also within the title. Right. Mm -hmm. Like just how we misuse words and terms and stuff without, you know, actually really looking at the <laughs> what's going on with the person sitting right next to us. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so the movie looks fantastic. From what I understand, you filmed an anamorphic. But uh, could mm -hmm. you talk us through some of the more technical elements of, uh, of making the movie? Yes, happily. Um, I worked with, uh, we, we worked with a bunch of really amazing technical people. Um, our cinematographer is an awesome cinematographer named Julia Swain. Um, and Julia uh, has a very um, moody, expressionistic tone to basically everything she does. <laughs> we did a commercial together that's like the most like moody, gorgeous thing. And it's for, what was it for? Oh, it's for like a jeans company. <laughs> 
<laughs> but it looks like, like, a <laughs> like so but um you know and and so you know and it's dark and moody and shadowy and all of that kind of glamorous stuff so uh i actually um had been eager to work with her in a narrative setting for a long time we had sort of been wanting to collaborate um sort of talking about the look of it uh and i and i had an instinct that this really um cinematic expressionistic uh, cinematography was going to work really well, not in opposition to, but as sort of a um, intention with the satire of the movie. Um, so that that's just like on the baseline level. The second part of that is that I really wanted to do anamorphic um, and specifically moody, uh, not super sharp, not super modern lenses mm -hmm. because the world is so bizarre and I didn't want you know, right off the bat from the first shot of the movie, you have to know, oh, I'm watching a movie. Right. Like, this is not about reality. Don't expect this to feel real because shit's going to get real weird. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, that was super important um, to make sure right off the bat that people know, like, okay, we're through the looking glass. You're in Alice in Wonderland now. Like, you're in a movie setting. This is not a documentary. Um, uh, and then, you know, one other really fun thing that we talked a lot about, we actually talked about potentially doing mixed format as the movie mm. continued, actually changing the format of the of the of the image um, or switching our lenses, lens set and sort of really changing in a very, very drastic way. Ultimately, we decided it was too distracting to do that. So we did more subtle things. So um, almost every scene of the movie has some slight technical visual change. Um whether we were changing the filtration that we were using, uh, the focal length, you know, mm -hmm. leaning more on different focal lengths. Uh, we, the movie starts um, a little bit flatter and then we get a little bit more distance mm. from May and um, sort of her, she gets a little bit more separated from the other characters uh, in, in the movie. Uh, you also see a little bit more steady cam. It just gets a little bit crazier right. <laughs> as it can through um so yeah so we were really interested in um creating a look that that changed over the course of the movie and so we built um we worked with a really fantastic colorist out of photochem named alistair arnold mm -hmm. who uh built a showlet for us so um basically like an idea of, that we could apply uh, not an idea a, a lut that we applied yep. to all of our dailies so actually when i was standing there looking at the monitor i was looking at an image that had our show lut applied right. so it wasn't looking like a rack 709 or whatever it was much closer to what we were eventually going to do and the the uh basically the grade changes throughout the movie mm -hmm. um, and so that was like the last piece of it that that we uh that we put together. But yeah, she was really jazzed by this idea of a look that evolves throughout the course of the film. Yeah. It was noticeable. She also, she also made um like a, like she like pitched, like she made like a little like pitch, like book. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah. And it was, it was pretty much what we ended up doing. <laughs> it totally. And it was awesome. And it helped me to visualize her style and her, you know, in the movie and the movie. I mean, I think you had already decided she was the DP before that, <laughs> but then she showed up with like this book, which again, is just like a testament to like professionalism. Yeah, and and she is really she was really excited by the idea of having these rules and parameters that then within those rules and parameters she could play. Um, mm -hmm. So sort of knowing by example, for, for example, when I say a rule, I mean like May's color is light blue, you know. And then as a cinematographer, she's sort of able to explore that and take that, you know, 
and apply it to the different sequences. So um, yeah, I think she was inspired by the the wackiness <laughs> of the movie. Really cool. Yeah, the, notice that the movie does change visually in a very gradual way. But you look at the beginning and then you you look at the end. It's very very yeah. different. It's like it, like it really evolves, which is interesting. So last mm-hmm. few questions here. Natasha, this being your second feature, were there any major lessons that you pulled from directing Imitation Girl that really came in handy on this set? Um, yeah, for sure. I think uh, the idea of um, giving yourself a little bit more time and space and not, you know, again, this is crazy to say because we shot so fast, but even within that, you know, not feeling you know, when you're on set and you're doing it, feeling like, no, this is my time. Mm-hmm. I have another 10 minutes. I'm going to use these 10 minutes until we have what I think we need. Um, and I think we actually had a really tight ship on this one. We actually only ended up cutting little tiny interstitial moments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pretty much what was in the script is what ended up on the screen, which means, you know, and we didn't have reshoots or anything, you know, yeah. so... Um, you know, there's a few little things that we ended up cutting, uh, for the most part, we were very efficient and in choosing what we were shooting, what we were spending our time filming. So I think that that definitely was an improvement. There was, I think a little bit more, um, fat mm-hmm. in image girl that ended up getting trimmed into the final cut. Whereas this was pretty much, you know, pretty, pretty direct. Um, and then I'll say, you know, I think, uh, this is such a like sort of abstract thing to say but just um surrounding myself with people who um you know are are very comfortable to challenge stuff in the script or challenge my own direction (laughs) in a healthy way right i was not necessarily something i knew to look for in imitation girl Mm. whereas with this film i think you know, I, I like that I will sit with Julia and Julia will say, I don't think that's the best way to cover the scene. What if we did this, you know, does this interesting to you? And I think that that, that is great, you know, and I think the more of that is something that I really want to continue fostering in in my relationships with crew. That's huge. Cause I feel like you want crew members who are going to, you know, question your decisions in a positive, not like annoying way. Not like a no. way where they're doubting you, but like, here's how I think you can make this better. Are you sure you want to do this? Because what about, I feel like that's what you want as opposed to people are just going to be difficult or people yeah. are just going to say, yeah, okay. And knowing that, Hey, maybe there's a better way to shoot it. Maybe there's a better lens or a better whatever. Instead of just going up, oh, you're the director. I'll, I will take orders. I feel like you don't want order takers, nor do you want people who are just going to be difficult. I feel like there's a, there's a fine balance and those people are worth their weight yeah. in gold. Absolutely. And I think the difference is it's it's when they're inspired by the film mm-hmm. and when they're inspired by the the script and they get what you're doing, then they get engaged and they are more interested in suggesting ideas and a little bit more creatively instead of just, okay, let's just get it done. But they have to care. Um, they have to care. Yeah. They have to care. Cool. <laughs> so when it comes to um, writing, filmmaking, and acting, there's a lot of books on the topic, most of which are written by people who haven't actually done it, or even if they have, they haven't exactly excelled at it. But that being said, were there any books or resources that were particularly formidable for you know, both of you guys, either when it comes to writing, directing, even acting? Oh, you asked me this last time. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, you know, it's sweet. I just got an, an email today from a, an actor who was like, what book should I read to learn to write? Huh. And I was like, oh, like once you understand the basics, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I, I was like, just watch a bunch of movies and then go find find the screenplays or, you mm-hmm. know, outline them yourself and see exactly how they're done, which is what I always do. I'm trying to think of anything for this particular movie. Um, how- I have. I have something that I discovered over the holidays, um, uh, which is there's on YouTube, I think it's like 45 minutes long or something. There's um, the lens tests from Phantom Thread that PTA uploaded and you can hear him. uh, They basically run through uh, and these are like these are dream lens tests, right? They're like in costume lighting's up they're in location <laughs> the actors are like basically improving scenes so this is like very fancy lens test <laughs> but um i think that that is really great because you can hear pta um describing not only the technical specs so he describes you know like the lens choice the focal length um you know what he likes about it why he chose it but you can also see the actors play and obviously these are the best of the best oh, yeah. in that movie doing um and so i think to that unguarded 45 minutes um super super technical so only for people who like really want to nerd out about this stuff um i just i just ate it up i thought it was just it's also one of my favorite movies of all time but phantom thread (laughs) but um yeah yeah and i think you can you can also see if you know the movie well you can see the choices that he changed Hmm. so you can see he gets into you know i keep talking about wardrobe but he gets into uh you know reynolds um you know, they had him in a tie, mm-hmm. you know, and they were like, that's all wrong. No, no, he's a bow tie guy, <laughs> you know. So, so it's like that kind of nitty gritty stuff. But I really, I really recommend it for people who uh, are looking for, for director, director minded content. So I think it's on YouTube. Okay. Yeah. Um, there was a podcast that I found really inspiring that ended up be only being, a, it was ended up being, a, I think it was supposed to go on and on, but it only ended up being like a short season. It, it's um, C. Robert Cargill did it. Hmm. Uh, he's a genre writer, obviously, but um, uh, it was just these little 15 minute snippets of him giving advice. And like some of it was answering questions, um, but he's very much a, uh, you know, clock in, clock out writer, which is what I consider myself as mm. well. Like you go to work every day, you clock in, you do your hours and then you're done. And, um, you know, it's it's none of the like waiting for the muse to right. hit you and uh which is the kind of stuff that I really like because I'm a very I'm a practical person and I, I can't I can't sit around and wait for some muse to show up or something. Right. That's time. <laughs> <laughs> um and it but he he answers a lot of great questions and I found that like really inspiring. It came out maybe two years ago. Oh wow, I gotta check um, it's that called, out. It's called uh Ride Along. Okay, Ride cool. Along. Great, thanks. I wanna check that out. That sounds great. It's, it's great. And it's not that many. I mean, I, it's like maybe 20 episodes or something. They're all 15 minutes long. So, yeah, it's great. Cool. So what is next for you both? Uh, well, um, we're tossing around, as of this week, a kind of wacky <laughs> idea that's also in the horror comedy satire right. space that, um, I don't know, I pitched Bria on it, so she might just be polite to me no, right now, no. But, uh, <laughs> i uh i'm i'm really excited about it and i i would really love to do something with bria again that rides the line between thriller horror and comedy because i think that's a really fun space specifically satire is really interesting so um we're throwing that around right now and bria's got a graphic novel yes i was about to ask you about that 
Could oh, you tell please. us about it's because Mary. Mary came out in 2020. How did your graphic novel come together? Um, it is my fourth that I've written. Um, I, I, but it's been a while since I've written one. I haven't written one about five or six years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I did all my other ones with IDW. And um, this one, I just had a friend who had read some read my old comics, um, and he started working at um, a company called Six Foot. And they uh, he asked if I had any YA sci-fi pitches, and I said no, but I have a television pitch that I could make YA that already is sci-fi. And so I I I, re- I retrofitted a um, uh, this this idea I had about the descendant of Mary Shelley the fictional descendant of Mary Shelley sort of not being able to live up to her, um, uh, what was expected of her. And then uh, realizing that maybe there's this whole other world of monsters that she's supposed to be helping, um, which is a very complicated way. It's, it, it's a coming of age story, um, yeah. <laughs> but monsters. Um, and uh, yeah, I worked on it. It was a three year process about because I, by the time I wrote, because it's a full graphic novel. So it's mm-hmm. by the time I wrote the whole thing and it took about a year to, uh, to get all the art finished and then doing all the notes and, and, and stuff on the art to, uh, another like six months or, or so. So, um, yeah, yeah, you can get it anywhere books are sold, but I like to suggest bookshop.org because part of the percentage of uh, a percentage of what you buy goes to your local bookstore if you buy it. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah, it's cool. Okay, cool. Cool. It's better, and you know, and you know, you could get it overnight from Amazon. But I always say I've never heard of a book emergency, so I don't know why why you would need it overnight. <laughs> <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you both so much. This was uh, this was a real pleasure. And I'm really glad to hear that you guys are talking about doing another project together because I really look forward to whatever you both do next. Ideally, together. Well, any uh, parting wisdom for those aspiring filmmakers out there? And or writers, <laughs> actors. Do you have other skills? No. Quit <laughs> <laughs> now. It's like that scene in Labyrinth where the like rocks are yelling no, for her no, to turn no. back. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. You're doing it's, a Labyrinth sequel, by the way. Yeah. Oh, I know. I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm here for it. Our, I'm our ready. Friend Maggie is our friend Maggie is uh, writing it. Maggie Lemon. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. I heard Prince originally was supposed to be the Goblin King. Oh, could you imagine? It would a very different movie, but I, I can't it imagine worked. it. I don't hate it, but Bowie is the Goblin King. So. Killed it, so of course. Good. Rules Absolutely. are rules. Yeah. Uh, no, I think, look, I think it's just, I, I feel like I'm just repeating myself, but it's just, it's surrounding yourself with people who are, are good, great collaborators and really like lucky. I think I'm happy that um, part of what's coming out of this is that, Brie and I are, are two women who were able to collaborate and not just our collaboration as two people, but, you know, our entire crew. Again, this was the most women that I've ever worked with. Um, and, and so finding those collaborations that are healthy <laughs> yeah. and productive um, is, is really key because this is not a solo. It's not a solo career. It's a community career. Yep. Great. Cool. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Awesome. Well, thank you guys again. This was a whole lot of fun and congratulations on the movie. Thank you. Thank you. It is now streaming on shutter for all of you listening. So check it out. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Here as always are some key takeaways from this conversation with Natasha and Bria. Number one, take note of ego versus confidence. 
There's a fine line that directors must always walk when on set. If you're too much of an egomaniac who barks orders at people all day without any regard for those around you, your crew will mutiny, and they should. Yes, of course, there are many directorial exceptions to this rule, but by and large, ego is the enemy. However, if you're too much of a pushover, your crew will walk all over you. This is why it's important to distinguish the difference between ego and confidence. Confidence is a necessary part of any directing job, as your entire cast and crew will be turning to you to make decisions on just about everything, and you need to have an answer or solution every time. In order to do that, you need confidence in your ability to lead. A film crew, just like a C crew, needs a captain, a captain they can rely on. Without confidence, you will be eaten alive. But with too much ego, you'll be ignored. Learn the difference between the two and strike that balance. Number two, take the time and space necessary. Directing is largely a game of hustle. Hustling to get your shots, make your day, and ensure everything goes according to plan. In the midst of all of this hustle, a lot can get lost in the fog, which is why it was very refreshing to hear Natasha talk about the importance of taking the time and space to get the shots right. Directing relies so much in your cognition in order to effectively tap into and communicate your creative vision. Rushing all the time and exerting stress on each and every move can obliterate your creativity. Yes, it's critical to make your day and get your shots without being too precious about details. But like everything, this is a balance and it's important to ensure that you breathe and you take the time necessary to get what you need when the cameras are rolling instead of just moving on every time as fast as possible. Number three, work with those who will challenge your decisions. Making a movie is a matter of melding together an infinite amount of decisions. Everything from casting choices to camera angles, lighting cues, wardrobe details, the decisions are endless. As a director, your job is either to make those decisions or to hire someone you trust to make them for you. A director needs to have a growth mindset by embracing the necessity to get better with each movie by learning as much as possible in the process. One of the best ways to do this is by learning from the cast and crew that you're privileged enough to be working with. This enables you to draw from decades of experience on a single movie, but similar to the first point, requires the relinquishing of your ego. Natasha spoke of the importance of having people around you who will respectfully challenge your decisions. This is priceless since you want to always be getting better. The best way to do this is by surrounding yourself with trusted collaborators who can teach you and make sure that every detail of your movie is as good as it can be. You do not want a cast and crew of order takers who will do what you say just because you're the director. Instead, you want an open field of communication between yourself and your key collaborators so that everyone can do the best job that they can. This requires you to always be open to feedback and to select people to work with who will challenge your opinions with your expertise for the sake of the movie. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor. And on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Okay.